Primary Care Anywhere, a resident-led medical education podcast created by the University of Utah Internal Medicine Resident. My name is Beth McDonald. The topic we'll be covering today is gonorrhea and chlamydia infection for the primary care provider. Gonorrhea and chlamydia are two of the most common infections in the United States with increasing rates of both infections over the past decade, and even these numbers are likely underestimated. Both these infections cause significant impact both on individual and population health, and we thought it would be a good time to review gonorrhea and chlamydia screening and care as there have been recent changes to treatment recommendations in the past few years. We have four segments on our topic today. I'm excited to be working with current residents, Drs. Poth, McCarran, and Smith, to dive into the epidemiology and screening, diagnosis, and treatment and prevention of these infections. Before we begin, I'd like to cover an example case that we will revisit at the end of our podcast. Here's our case today. A 22-year-old male college student, Mr. Doe, presents to your clinic with a chief complaint of dysuria and urethral discharge. He denies a history of fever, chills, nausea, or abdominal pain. He has never had a urinary tract infection. He has had Neisseria gonorrhea treated six months ago with an unknown antibiotic. He has no significant past medical history. On physical examination, the only findings are urethral meatus, erythema, a small amount of urethral discharge with milking, and no epididymal tenderness. We'll return to Mr. Doe later, but for now, let's settle in and learn about epidemiology and screening. Hey, my name is Austin Poth. I'm a current PGY3 in internal medicine at the University of Utah, and I'm going to talk to you about the epidemiology and screening for gonorrhea and chlamydia. Chlamydia and gonorrhea are two of the most common infections in the United States, with about 1.8 million cases of chlamydia and 600,000 cases of gonorrhea reported in 2019. Since this is a reported estimate, the true infection rate is potentially over double for both of these. The numbers have been increasing over the past decade, with an increase in cases of about 19% for chlamydia and 56% for gonorrhea from 2015 to 2019 alone. This has changed somewhat with the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic in 2020, but even since then, chlamydia cases have been trending back upwards and gonorrhea cases have continued to trend upwards even despite the pandemic. In general, these infections disproportionately affect racial and ethnic minorities, men who have sex with men, and adolescent and young adults. It can also have profound repercussions on fertility, pregnancy outcomes, and infant morbidity. Because of this, the indications for screening are frequently reevaluated and addressed. Currently, the USPSTF recommends annual screening in all sexually active women younger than 25 years and in women at increased risk. Increased risk is defined as having sex with a new partner, more than one sex partner, a sex partner with concurrent partners, or a sex partner who has an STI. For men, the screening guidelines are actually a little bit less clear. Since the USPSTF has not found sufficient evidence to recommend screening for chlamydia or gonorrhea in men, it mainly focuses on more high-risk populations. For men who have sex with men, they recommend screening at all anatomical sites of exposure at least annually, and more often for men at higher risk of infection. There was also a conditional expert recommendation by the CDC stating screening for sexually active young men be considered in the clinical settings with higher prevalence. This is in situations such as correctional facilities, adolescent clinics, and STI clinics. For correctional settings specifically, they recommend women less than 35 years of age and men less than 30 years of age should be screened for both gonorrhea and chlamydia. Finally, for transgender and gender diverse patients, The CDC recommends screening on the basis of anatomy and gender of sex partners that follows recommendations for sexually active men and women previously described. And with that, I'll turn it over to Jared Smith to talk about diagnosis. 
Hello everyone, my name is Jared Smith. I'm one of the current PGY2s um, and I will be talking today about the diagnosis of chlamydia and gonorrhea. We'll break that up into a couple of different sections starting with the various clinical features and different clinical syndromes someone might present with, then moving on to the differential diagnosis, discussion of co-infections and how this impacts our workup, and then finally what sort of microbiological testing we use uh, to diagnose gonorrhea and chlamydia. So let's start by talking about urogenital infections, um, and we'll start with focusing on women in particular. Uh, in women, most of the time, gonorrhea and chlamydia uh, infections of the urogenital tract are going to be asymptomatic. When they do have symptoms, they just mimic the standard UTI symptoms. So someone might present with things like dysuria, vaginal discharge, bleeding between menstrual periods, pain with sexual intercourse, or even more um, abdominal or pelvic pain. Uh, in men, however, symptoms are more common um, most of the time and do present with symptoms, and this is more common in gonorrhea than it is in chlamydia. The most common symptoms would be dysuria, uh, urethral discharge, um, and then itching or burning as well. Important to note that this can ascend and cause other syndromes like epididymitis or orchitis, which uh, tend to have a more dramatic clinical presentation with uh, pretty profound testicular pain. Uh, and aside from the urogenital infections, it's important to recognize as well that gonorrhea and chlamydia can both affect the rectum and the oropharynx. So uh, these tend to be asymptomatic in the vast majority of cases. So um, when proctitis is present and does have symptoms, it presents with things like pruritus, anal discharge or pain, tenesmus, or a sensation of incomplete emptying after defecation. Um, if you do have someone who's presenting with these symptoms, it's important to, uh, during the physical exam, assess for inguinal lymphadenopathy, as this can um, sort of guide your differential. So you might be more suspicious of uh, the clinical syndrome of lymphogranuloma venereum, which certain uh, strains of chlamydia can cause. However, um, herpes simplex virus and primary syphilis can also present with inguinal lymphadenopathy, so those should be on the differential as well in that case. Um, in men, proctitis is generally from a sexual exposure in the rectum, but interestingly, uh, studies of women with gonorrhea or chlamydia of the rectum have found that it's actually not associated with receptive anal sex, and so it's thought to be more from auto-inoculation from a urogenital infection. And then keeping it on sort of non-genital infections, important to note that conjunctivitis can also develop, tends to be a purulent conjunctivitis, and this is also thought to be from auto-inoculation. And then sort of rarer syndromes to be aware of are a disseminated gonococcal infection as well as reactive arthritis. So in a disseminated gonococcal infection, um, you would expect to see things like fever, warmth and redness of the joints, uh, can also present with dermatitis. Skin lesions can range from petechial to vesicular to pustular. Um, in rare and more severe cases, it can be associated with perihepatitis or Fitzhugh-Curtis syndrome, or even endocarditis or meningitis in very rare cases. And then in terms of reactive arthritis, this is a syndrome that's seen uh, several weeks after uh, genitourinary uh, infection from chlamydia presents with um, conjunctivitis, urethritis, dermatitis as well. Um, and again, this is more common in men than in women in treatment uh, after treatment of the infection is with NSAIDs or steroids. 
So moving on to differential diagnosis, um, this is going to be guided by your definition of what the clinical syndrome your patient is presenting with. And so um, starting with cervicitis, um, in most cases, no organism will be isolated in women. Um, however, when there is an organism isolated, it's most commonly gonorrhea or chlamydia, but other uh, uh, entities to be aware of would be a trichomonas infection, bacterial vaginosis, or even rarely um, herpes virus can cause cervicitis. Um, these are many of the same organisms that would lead to something more profound, like pelvic inflammatory disease, uh, if this went untreated for a long period of time. Thinking more about urethritis in particular, um, in addition to gonorrhea and chlamydia, important to keep on your differential organisms like mycoplasma genitalium or urea plasma, um, in addition to trichomonas, uh, as I mentioned. Uh, Herpes simplex virus and adenovirus are actually also potential causal agents for urethritis. Uh, and then it's important to think a little bit about your population and, um, and what their risk factors are. So in the men who have sex with men population, you should also consider enteric gram-negative organisms as a potential cause of, of urethritis, and that should impact your treatment selection as well. To give you a sense of the relative prevalence of some of these different organisms, there was a study of 900 men with urethritis. The most common organism was Neisseria gonorrhea at 35%. Actually more common than chlamydia was Mycoplasma genitalium at 29%. The chlamydia was a close third at 25%. And then Trichomonas was um, the fourth at a much more distant 7%. And then finally, just to mention, if a patient is presenting with symptoms concerning for proctitis, in addition to gonorrhea and chlamydia, you should be considering syphilis or HSV as well. And it is important to remember that often these infections do not present in isolation, and co-infection is quite common. Um, and so we know that if someone is testing positive for gonorrhea, unless you've ruled out chlamydia with a negative test, um, empiric treatment for chlamydia is also recommended. Uh, in the setting of a patient who is presenting with persistent symptoms without a response to uh, antibiotic treatment for gonorrhea or chlamydia, that is a situation where you should strongly consider an organism like Mycoplasma genitalium or Trichomonas. Um, and uh, it's also important to consider updating someone's HIV and syphilis testing if they've not had that recently and are presenting with urethritis concerning for gonorrhea or chlamydia. And then lastly, just wanted to close out my section with a discussion of specifics related to testing. So while clinical diagnosis is useful for defining your syndrome and getting a differential together, there's so much overlap among uh, the different things that these different pathogens can cause that it is important to identify a specific organism. This helps with reporting to health departments. It can improve um, someone's notification of their partner and obviously guide treatment as well. Uh, empiric treatment is not recommended if someone's asymptomatic, so in that case, we will typically wait to uh, treat until someone has a specific test result for gonorrhea or chlamydia unless they have a partner who uh, had a positive test within the last two months, in which case empiric treatment would be appropriate. Um, However, the backbone of testing right now really is nucleic acid amplification testing, or NAT, and this is true for all different anatomical sites at which someone might have a gonorrhea or chlamydia infection. So focusing on the genital tract um, in women, uh, both vaginal swabs or endocervical swabs are appropriate for use, as well as a first catch urine specimen, first catch meaning first thing in the morning.
Patients can actually self-collect vaginal swabs, and these are the optimal specimen because of their high sensitivity. However, endocervical swabs and urine uh, testing in women also does have very high sensitivity, and so those are appropriate to use as well. In men, for a suspected general tract infection, a first-catch urine specimen is the optimal way of collecting this, and there's really no need for a urethral swab in this population. For rectal and pharyngeal swabs, however, the FDA has not actually approved this for patient-collected swabs, uh, but this is commonly done in clinical practice and something you can discuss with your patients. Um, and so really that's what's important to know about the nucleic acid amplification testing. There are a few other modalities that have some specific uses. So microscopy can be done in the point of care setting if you have the ability to gram stain, for example, uh, urethral discharge. Uh, this is a way to confirm gonococcal infection. And what you would see on the stain is leukocytes with gram-negative intracellular diplococci. This is really only appropriate for diagnosis of urethritis as the sensitivity is too low for testing in other sites. Um, in 2019, there was a point-of-care NAT or nucleic acid amplification test that was approved by the FDA, but there are not widely established guidelines for its use just yet. And then finally, just to mention culture, uh, it is rarely indicated. Uh, it is not widely available for chlamydia. Um, in testing for gonorrhea, it is really only used in cases of treatment failure um, when we're trying to define antimicrobial susceptibility, and it's used in epidemiological studies for um, figuring out resistance patterns in the community. Important to note that we are definitely seeing increasing resistance to cephalosporins and azithromycin, so if you have a patient presenting who uh, is having symptoms uh, refractory to treatment with a cephalosporin or azithromycin would be important to consider resistance and in that case getting a culture for uh, determining susceptibilities would be helpful. Um, and that's all I got, so thanks for listening. Now that Dr. Smith walked us through the diagnosis, let's get down to treatment. Current guidelines recommend treating chlamydia with a 7-day course of oral doxycycline 100 milligrams twice daily. Previous guidelines actually recommended a single dose of 1 gram of azithromycin, which still remains first-line treatment in pregnant individuals to avoid the potential toxic effects on tooth and bone development. You can also reach for the one-time dose of azithromycin if it isn't feasible for your patient to complete the 7-day course of antibiotics. After prescribing the adequate treatment, it's important to remind your patients to abstain from sexual contact for at least 7 days after all partners have been treated. Shifting over to gonorrhea, Recommended treatment for uncomplicated urogenital, anorectal, or pharyngeal gonorrhea is a single dose of ceftriaxone, 500 mg intramuscularly, or oral cefixime if IM isn't feasible. If you're not able to confidently rule out chlamydia as well, you should treat both infections simultaneously with either doxycycline or azithromycin as discussed earlier. After you prescribe antibiotics, you generally don't need to test for a cure as you'll likely get a false positive several weeks after treatment due to bits of DNA and RNA still floating around. However, it is recommended that you repeat testing in three months, not for cure, but because the risk of recurrent infection is so high in this setting. So now that you've treated the infection, keep an eye out for the differences between recurrence versus reinfection. Recurrence happens when a previously treated infection returns, most often due to failure to treat sexual partners or from sexual activity with a new infected partner. Reinfection may represent treatment failure due to inadequate treatment of concomitant rectal chlamydia or gonorrhea or possible microbial resistance. In cases of treatment failure, 
we do recommend referral to an infectious disease specialist for further workup. These cases should also be reported to the CDC through the local or state health department. One of the most important parts in caring for patients with STIs is to treat both the patient and their sexual partners. Ideally, we would recommend any partners within the past 60 days be referred to a clinician for a formal assessment and empiric treatment. If you can't ensure the treatment of all partners, the state of Utah allows expedited partner therapy, or EPT, where a provider can prescribe oral medications to treat these sexual infections without first seeing the patient in an office visit. As Dr. Poth mentioned a few minutes ago, screening for chlamydia and gonorrhea is a huge part of preventative health care, accounting for millions of infections in the U.S. every year. Currently, the United States Preventative Services Task Force only recommends that women be screened for these infections. For men, only a small subgroup is indicated to be screened annually. I think this is a fascinating guideline, as we all know that it takes two to tango. The majority of women with a positive screening result for chlamydia or gonorrhea probably receive the infection from a penis, so why not screen all genders? Should we screen the peen? Experts speculate that screening men might be low yield, as they tend to present with symptomatic infections, as opposed to women who generally present asymptomatically. I wonder if STI screening will follow a similar trajectory to HPV vaccinations, where it took until 2019 for the HPV vaccine series to be recommended across all genders. Alright, let's review our treatment options. For chlamydia, reach for a 7-day course of doxycycline or a single dose of azithromycin in pregnant patients or those who cannot complete a full week of antibiotics. For gonorrhea, a single dose of ceftriaxone usually does the trick. Make sure to treat both partners for chlamydia and gonorrhea infections to reduce transmission and reinfection. If you can't rule out either infection definitively, play it safe and treat both. Now let's put our hands together for Dr. Beth McDonald to wrap things up. Thanks, everyone. Let's consider the case of Mr. Doe again. As a reminder, he's a 22-year-old male with dysuria and urethral discharge without other symptoms. He did have a recent diagnosis of Neisseria gonorrhea six months ago and completed treatment. Mr. C illustrates many features of gonorrhea and chlamydial infections that my colleagues previously outlined for us. He is symptomatic, as many male patients are, with symptoms of urethral discharge and dysuria. He also has completed treatment, but appears to have either an incomplete response or possible reinfection. Now, what are your next steps as a primary care provider? Completing NAT testing with clean catch urine could help establish diagnosis. If our case patient had a vagina, we could consider using urine versus vaginal or endocervical swabs. As Mr. Doe is currently symptomatic, we don't need to wait for test results to decide to treat. We could consider an untreated co-infection with chlamydia and expand our treatment while also discussing the possibility of an untreated partner leading to reinfection. Additionally, we could expand our differential to include some other pathogens that are less common like trichomonas. In discussion with Mr. Doe, you learn that he forgot to tell his partner to go get tested or treated themselves. You discuss treating for both gonorrhea and chlamydia for Mr. Doe and as you practice in Utah, you're able to prescribe EPT to ensure partner treatment. You also advise them to abstain from sexual contact for seven days following treatment. Now that we've wrapped up the case of Mr. Doe, let's discuss a few takeaway points from this episode. Gonorrhea and chlamydia are two of the most common infections in the U.S. with increasing rates of both, 
over the past decade. First, current screening recommendations advise annual screening in all sexually active women under the age of 25 and women at increased risk of infection. Male screening is focused on higher risk individuals, including men who have sex with men and individuals in settings of higher prevalence. Gender diverse recommendations are based on anatomy and gender of sexual partners. Second, presentations vary. Women will often present asymptomatic or present like a UTI, while men are more likely to be symptomatic with itching, burning, or penile discharge. Diagnosis is supported by NAT testing with first catch urine or possible endocervical or vaginal swabs. Rarely, patients can present with disseminated gonococcal infection, reactive arthritis, proctitis, pelvic inflammatory disease, or other complications of these infections. Finally, let's review the guidelines for treatment. For chlamydia, it's recommended to treat with a seven-day course of oral doxycycline 100 milligrams BID. If a patient is currently pregnant or might have difficulty with a seven-day course, you can do a single dose of one gram of azithromycin. For gonorrhea, it is recommended to treat with a single dose 500 milligrams of ceftriaxone IM. Note this is increased from the prior guideline. If you cannot rule out chlamydia, it is appropriate to treat as if your patient is co-infected. All right, that completes our episode today. I hope you all enjoyed learning something new or reviewing the guidelines. Thank you all for listening to Primary Care Anywhere. (music) 